Uh, Alan, first of all, thank you very much for having the conversation uh, with Hello. us once once again. Now, uh, would you mind just giving a, f- a short introduction on uh, your data data uh, driven journey yourself? How did you start your professional career, and how did you end up with the data bunch? It's, it's an interesting question because I think I, like a lot of people, I talk to in the kind of data sphere at the moment, I, I didn't set out wanting to be a data professional. I fell into it um, somewhat unintentionally. Mm-hmm. So uh, um, you know, my, my background educationally is, is engineering and, and I, my first job out of that was in, was in manufacturing, helping small mm-hmm. and medium-sized manufacturers do more with the resources they had available to them. Whether that was make more stuff with the same amount of resources or use less resources, or use the same amount of resources to make more stuff. Mm-hmm. And that... Um, the way we pitched what we did was that we, you know, we would come in and help people understand complicated processes and, and help find opportunity within that to improve and, and drive performance. And I think what I realized after doing that for several years was like we would pitch that the hard problems were the technical problems. But actually, at the root of it, the hard problems were not the technical problems. The hard problems were the, the people and organizational problems that go around those technical problems. If you have a group of people that can communicate well and trust each other and work together effectively, and you give them enough time and space, they'll solve the hard technical problems. Like organizations are filled with full of smart people who want to do good stuff. Um, the problem is when when the rest of the system gets in the way and mm-hmm. either they get grumpy or disengaged or don't want to do it. So, so I, I spent several years doing that and and uh, eventually wanted to go and. Do it, for, do it for myself, right? I think I got a little bit frustrated with working with organizations to get from zero to 10 miles an hour. Uh, and then as soon as we'd start to get, you know, we'd get through a lot of the tough stuff and difficult conversations early on. And, and as soon as the momentum starts to build, the organizations we work with would be like, great, cool, we got this from here, bye. <laughs> and um, that's, you know, that's that's tough. And I think I wanted to see what the next phase looked like. And, and, and I think that personally was sold on what it would look like that sold that the next phase was where the real value was mm-hmm. once you'd actually unlocked the, the ability to, to do things so with, with that mindset there found found tales.com now I, a couple of the founding team I, i'd known from a previous life there, there's a, i spent some time at innocent drinks a long time ago who make smoothies and several of the founders for, for tales.com had been at, had been at innocent and so there were some links there already and as, as a person coming from a manufacturing background, I was sold on mass customized manufacturing. We're making a product where every single bag of food that leaves our factory is, is different and designed specifically for the dog at hand. And I was attracted to it as a as a manufacturing problem, as a you know, the, this is what the future of manufacturing looks like. But I think and this is guess, more interesting from a, a manufacturing and an industry point of view. And there's a phrase going around. Um, manufacturing at the moment of in industry 4.0 of like mm-hmm. this is a kind of technical revolution in in industry and really industry 4.0 is about data that's like mm-hmm. at its root it's about better data collection it's about better use of data it's about the use of analytics on the on on the factory floor and using that to drive you know mass customization and better performance across across the whole value chain it's a revolution about data and i didn't i didn't realize that at the time but i think if i mm-hmm. dug under the under the hood of why I was excited about the prospect of mass customization. It was it was that under the hood, and so fell into what I, I somewhat jokingly describe as cheap Excel monkey in my, in, in in my first role 
at sales. CEM, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> the exactly. Classic right? called the CEM, yeah. Well, and I, but I think for particularly for small businesses, like you know, you don't need a lot of infrastructure. You don't need a lot of snazzy tools to get started. What you need is the the basics to understand the key metrics that power your business and how do you how do you use visibility of that and and leverage the understanding you have of your customers to make meaningful change that that hits the bottom line um and in looking back at this retrospectively i think i was lucky in being in that environment for a couple of reasons well one i had a team around me that that got what they, they didn't understand how to do data but they got that it was important and it was a useful thing and i think that but given the business context that was a somewhat easy sell our product doesn't work without data but um mm. nonetheless it was it could have it could have been a big mess if their team around me didn't didn't understand it. I think also that um, uh, that being in a small business, there is a necessity to change. You can't. The idea, I mean, particularly in larger organisations, it can be difficult to get things to happen and change processes because things are established and it's difficult to break down established processes and rebuild. Whereas if you're in a small business that isn't making money, the necessity is change. If we do not change, we will fail and we will die. And, mm-hmm. and everybody knows that. And so there's, there's um, you don't have to sell people on change. You just have to help understand which direction. Mm-hmm. The, the problem is there are too many choices, not that there aren't enough. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and lastly, that um, that it means that the that that environment necessitates that the work that you do has to have impact and it has to have impact early right if i'd gone and suggested hey we're going to do a 18 month data transformation we're going to buy a load of infrastructure tools and it's going to be great at the end of it we're going to have shiny dashboards and then we'll work out what to do with them like uh wasn't gonna, mm-hmm. that wasn't going to fly right um if i'd said that was going to take six months probably also wasn't going to fly like yeah. it, it needed to be incremental simple cheap and deliver value next week Mm-hmm. Um, and in some ways, I think that that mindset is is very useful, and I think is what has shaped my my personal approach to data analytics going forward. That um, you know, if you can't if you can't show incremental value bit by bit as you build out and deploy stuff, you're going to lose momentum and things aren't going to work. And yeah, occasionally you do need to make big bets, but if all you make are big bets with long lead times. Things things get really tough and, uh, and and really hard, and I think that from starting out very small with one person and an Excel spreadsheet and maybe a couple of Tableau desktop licenses, uh, through to where we are now, and you know we've got two hundred fifty thousand customers across Western Europe and a team of three hundred people doing you know trying to change the world of pet food for good. Um, it's 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 been a a fun journey, but really the the bit in the middle is just how. How do we get the right people and the right tools in place to achieve what we've always wanted to achieve, which is mm-hmm. use data to help make people make better decisions, which ultimately bring about better performance in the organization that we sit within and further the goals of what we're trying to do. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. And then about that fun journey, <clears throat> because yeah, uh, going from Excel to where you are now, it's you know, very impressive. Um, what are some of the highlights on that journey? Like, like do, do you have any of these milestones in mind, like some war stories that you would like to share just so we can put the pieces together? <laughs> um, I think there's, uh, uh, the war stories is a good way of putting it. And I think there's, what's interesting is looking at the, the evolution of the kinds of decisions we had to make 
um, over uh, over that over that evolution. And I think in in the early days, um, the, the the really tough thing was um, getting everyone to agree on what what numbers we were even talking about. Um, I, I uh, when I, I I arrived to find everyone had their own different version of how many customers we had, and that was because we had SQL queries that people had saved in their My Documents folders of different vintages, and some of them had been updated and some of them hadn't. And and we would end up in endless arguments of oh you know oh we're using this person's numbers or that person's numbers. Uh, and obviously as a as as the person whose job it is to work out whose numbers are right, um, that. Well, to start with, it's quite demoralizing, mm-hmm. uh, um, and it's also a huge time suck to to do any of the um, to 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 do work that actually hits the bottom line. Like any, uh, unless there's a the, the exercise to work out the difference between two numbers that should say the same thing is only valuable once. If you mm-hmm. do that exercise more than once, you, you missed something. Yeah, <laughs> um, and I guess job number one when I when I first arrived was just to get like to make sure that we have one number for how many customers we have, and if your number is different from that number, your number's wrong. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this number is how many customers <laughs> we have, um, and you know, and doing that for all of our our key metrics across a um, across. I mean, we're a subscription organization, so we we end up with we're a subscription manufacturer organization, we're a manufacturer, we are direct to consumer business, so we have a, mm-hmm. all of the kinds of metrics you'd imagine but we have quite a few for each of those different aspects of the business we have um so that's the kind of early days and, and some of the, the war stories there of having fights about whose mm. numbers right and whose numbers wrong and um I, there's a, an advantage in those days where as a small organization you can be somewhat autocratic you should turn off people's mm-hmm. access if there are too many numbers that are wrong just get rid of the other numbers and make it impossible for them to make them and suddenly there's only yeah. one a lot easier like that doesn't fly later on but it, in, in the early days it doesn't I think yeah. in the middle, we, we started getting into, you know, we, we should actually grow up a little bit here. We, we got to the point where people depend on what we do, that, that data became not just like some icing on the top, but it became part of critical business processes. And that means we need to actually make sure it works and mm-hmm. that means we need to invest. But we don't have any budget aside for investing and we don't have any expectation about how much things cost. And I think there's mm-hmm. a, I guess this is a slightly broader point, I think there's a for growing organizations, there's a there's a really painful spot in the middle of that growth where mm. if you're small, you can use all the free tools. The free tools are fine. And sure, they're a bit rough around the edges, but they're good enough for what you're doing. If you're really big, there's loads of tools out there. And actually, you've probably got the budget and the firepower to buy them and to evaluate them and the team to, to integrate them. Um, in the middle, uh, you don't really, you have some budget, you don't have enough budget and all of the pricing models for lots of these tools are set up for the big guys because that's mm. where the business comes from. And so you end up having to you end up having to negotiate really hard on pricing to get stuff that will work mm-hmm. and you make some trade offs, which for a large organization seems somewhat ridiculous. Right? We, we, I remember us having a conversation about whether we should we invest in a data warehouse or a BI tool. Mm. Mm-hmm. The, which one? Which one? Is, do we have a BI tool? And still deal with our data being all over the place or do we start to centralize our data and, and rely on the open source um bi solutions that exist out there and the open source source community is great but mm-hmm. just holding you back at some point and uh, making choice investments and and 
Yeah, I, I feel like the, the, the archetype there is the, the <laughs> argument over which bit of infrastructure can we have, not which provider are we going to use at each stage. Mm-hmm. And then I think we get we get further down the line, and I was talking to someone about this the other day, I think, I think when you're relatively low levels of data maturity, there's a, a lot of the team problems you have are gaps in knowledge. People don't know how mm. to do um, But the beauty of, of knowledge gaps is as soon as you fill, you fill the knowledge in, in the space, that, um, that they're very easy to solve. You know, if your team doesn't know how to use, you know, uh, I don't know, uh, take a trivial example, you know, you've got a team that doesn't know how to use pivot tables. Well, you teach them how to use pivot tables, and suddenly they really want to use pivot tables because they're like, mm-hmm. oh, wow, what I needed all my life. There's no, there's no sales pitch. It's just fill in the gaps. And mm-hmm. As we squashed you know, knowledge gaps across, across the organization and the teams, you start to highlight the harder problems where, you know what, the teams know how to do this stuff. They know why it's important, but it's still not happening. And it's not happening either because communication flows don't work or because teams' responsibilities aren't clear. And you, you start finding gaps between people's roles and who does what and what the expectations are and, and cultural things about how, you know, how do we approach the topical word for us is experimentation. Like, how do we approach experimentation and what does good experimentation look like? Um, mm-hmm. And well, and you mentioned data driven before. Like what what is what actually mm-hmm. do we mean when we say data driven? Do we mean we should never make a decision unless there is data behind it? Because that means we're never going to innovate, right? No. If you only ever do things you've got data for, you're never going to do new stuff. So and, and how do we navigate those things where actually the, the 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 top level version of it makes loads of sense, but the the detail and the connections between them leads to some weird outcomes that need to be actually that, that matter right and mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. and once you get to a level of a certain level of data maturity start start to be the thing which is holding you back on performance hmm. and that's a good question actually that you just proposed and it's 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 one of the big questions too what does it mean to be data driven so actually if you could give your perspective or just give it a swing i know it's a i know, yeah. I know it's a tough one right but what do you think it means when people talk about becoming data driven one of our one of our great goals is we are basically leading a crusade against jargon and buzzwords yeah. in and of themselves we know that jargon can be useful in general so we can refer to a thing and don't always have to like unpack it right but we feel that over time including this industry a lot of this jargon became hollow and lifeless and a lot of times meaningless, right? Like people yeah. throw around jargon and data driven. We don't say that it is, but it's definitely in danger of, of falling v- victim to this uh, tendency. So what do you think data driven means? Uh, oh, I feel like we can unpack this at a couple of different mm-hmm. layers. I think that, um, I, I think that the, 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 the main thoughts I have are, are that, Firstly, it depends on what your organization is and what your organization is for, right? What data-driven looks like for an online pet food manufacturer is going to be different to what data-driven looks like if you're the NHS or if mm-hmm. you are um, uh, Tesco or like it, it, the kind of business you are it, it dictates what data-driven should mean for you. Um, and I also think that at least my vision for, I think, what data-driven looks like, we need to expand our view of what, what we mean when we say data. Because I think as as data professionals, we can often have quite a narrow view of, of what is data. 
and and data and to us data is you know numbers charts and mm-hmm. graphs and confidence levels and predictions and there's a whole host of problems where those are exactly the right tools to use and there are a whole host of problems where those are the wrong tools to use if we look mm-hmm. at if we try and decide uh i mean we were talking about experimentation a minute ago like, data won't tell you what to do next it will just tell you if what you're doing is working mm-hmm. um if you want to understand what your customers want you probably you should probably talk to them <laughs> ask mm-hmm. them. um there was a, a long running so uh, and, and i guess um, i'll come back to the point in a second but i guess there's, there's there's a risk in businesses that have a lot of data that it becomes incrementally difficult to justify collecting the next piece of data and so you can almost end up with a, a, a missing the wood for the trees effect where you have loads of data, but you have none of the right data, all of the wrong data. And mm-hmm. the right data. An example for us was for, for several years, we wanted to understand why customers came to us. What were they looking for from our product? And we, you know, we did a, a whole host of interesting machine learning activities and correlation exercises and NLP analysis on the customer mm-hmm. comms that people sent to us to try and understand what was this customer actually interested in? And yeah, we had some success. Some things kind of worked, but never really stuck. Mm-hmm. And then eventually, after all of this work, we decided, you know what, let's just ask them. <laughs> yeah, I, knew, I knew it was coming. I knew it was coming. Yeah. <laughs> we said, like, what, why, why try and predict this thing that, that we're just going to get much better data if we do something really simple and just ask? And yeah. it's, yeah, it's, it's a qualitative answer that you have to treat differently, mm-hmm. but it, it's a, it's a lot more reliable because you don't have all the vagaries of, of probability in the middle. And it's a lot more tangible and, and, and understandable for a whole host of people across the organization because, because it's direct from the customer. And, and mm-hmm. for me, that is data, right? What you, the stories you hear from your customers, the anecdata, the qualitative research, the market trends, the, uh, all of that is, 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 is data in my view. Um, it might not be the responsibility of your quote unquote data team, but if we're talking about what does it mean to be data driven, it in my mind it means that you you make decisions on the basis of insight and on the basis of, of logical deduction rather than on the basis of of um well of guesswork or gut feel or mm-hmm. what a highest paid person in the room says. Um mm-hmm. and to do that well means uh I think it takes some almost humility, I think, is mm-hmm, what it mm-hmm. takes, because if you if 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 you are in an organization where it's not OK to be wrong, it's not OK to fail, it's not OK to discover that you thought one thing and now we think something different, mm-hmm. then becoming data driven is going to be really hard, because if you if you are looking at some data without the uh, acceptance that the data might tell you something different to what you currently believe, mm-hmm. it's a waste of time looking because mm-hmm. or it's either going to confirm what you were going to do anyway, in which case you were going to do it anyway, or it's going to disagree with you and then you'll say the data's wrong and you won't look at it and you're going to do whatever you did anyway. It doesn't change mm-hmm. the action. Um, and I guess it's easy to see that on a micro level, but the way that that drives organizational behavior means that if, you know, if if uh, if a if a project or a new initiative isn't performing well, and that would be regarded as a as a 
as a failure for the team and might actually put some people's, you know, potentially in some organizations, mm-hmm. people's jobs at risk, then you can be pretty well guaranteed that that team is not incentivized to look objectively at the data. They're mm-hmm. incentivized to cherry pick. They're incentivized to use the wealth of data they have to their disposal to demonstrate the point that they've already decided. And that's not being data driven. That's very mm-hmm. picking and we mm-hmm. there are enough stories of that in the political sphere of late that we don't need to talk yeah. about what that looks like in but the same thing happens in is in organizations like if you if you've incentivized someone to not fail they will find all kinds of mm-hmm. proof to show that they haven't failed um mm-hmm. and and so when we talk about what is data driven i think it's it's this this effort to, to use all of the sources of information available to you whether that's quantitative or qualitative and some of that may just be deduction, right? We, we talked a bit before about uh, mm-hmm. innovation. Um, and uh, I think what, what there's, uh, there's an interesting question about what, what does data-driven innovation look like? And I think mm-hmm. it's about it's about using information, but if, when you start, you don't have any information. You have to take that step into the unknown and take a punt on something mm-hmm. and do something that you've never done before. What, what, makes that, what makes that data-driven is what you do after that, that when you take that step, out into the unknown, that you that you measure the response, that you look at it, you look at it objectively and say, okay, we tried this thing, we tr- and we tried something big, such that if it if there was anything in this idea, we would have seen something. Did we mm-hmm. see it? Being critical about, okay, no, that actually didn't make an effect, so we're going to take a different step. We tried something, mm-hmm. it was a good try, didn't work, we're going to try something else. But then occasionally you'll step on something oh, and go, wow, that actually had a, a a good response. Let's do that. Mm-hmm. Just do more of that, do, and 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 get that flywheel going in those directions. Um, I guess at the root of it, it's you could call it scientific method. That's what people have been doing mm-hmm. experimentation, mm-hmm. trying stuff. But I think in what, what that means for for modern organizations now is is the the behavioral and cultural aspects of how people use information to make decisions and do that in a way that is robust. Mm. Um, and and you. Yeah, you mentioned there something really so. So that's something that just keep coming up, and uh, even when I talk about what I do, right, in in my job to you know some of my friends, and uh, it's 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 such a weird thing because uh, we work with uh, corporate leaders in 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 data technology, right, and then basically the conversation usually paradoxically. Uh, revolves around human beings, revolves around things like humility. You mentioned humility, and I immediately jumped on it because even Paul and I have been talking about this a lot lately. How we just keep coming back to humility? What is this mysterious thing about humility that, you know, through the labyrinth of data technology, we find ourselves in a, you know, human virtue of humility? Like, what is going on there? And it's very interesting, this whole idea, we're playing around with this idea of human-centric data, right? Because data in and of itself and data it's meaningless without the proper understanding of the of the human being. But when you when you do that, you end up with meaningless stuff that just falls apart without the human yeah. element. Anyways, I don't want to like really explore the philosophical depth of this. But with you, if 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 we look at humility, it makes sense, right? So if you want to be data driven, you need to give up your your preconceptions. You need to be humble in front of the sheer power of the information itself and the insights that it, it you know reveals, and have the humility to follow that. So, and just a quick question. I'm not sure what kind of answer you would have, but. How do you achieve that? How do how do you actually uh, uh, make people? I don't want to use force people because you can't force people. But how do you encourage people? How do you instill that humility 
in the people that you work with, or maybe even the people who might be, you know, higher on the higher on the food chain in in the business. Like, how, how do you inspire that humility, if in any way? I think there's there's well with with any kind of with any kind of change you can you can make the case for it in a couple of different ways, um, and and it, we've already roughly outlined the the kind of rational logical outline for humility that if if you if you aren't open to being wrong and aren't accepting of occasionally being wrong you're never going to change your mind and so that that's that one I think is quite an easy sell but obviously the, because it's a very logical sales pitch like it, it's not doesn't always bring about the change you want. Um, and I think, I, I think on a, on a cultural level, I think the, the, the most powerful thing to do is, is to, to role model the behavior you want to see in others. Certainly if you're thinking about uh, the role of a data leader and how they build a team of people doing a particular way is that you should walk, you know, you have to walk the walk as well as talk the talk. I, mm-hmm. It has to be acceptable. I have to be publicly wrong on a regular basis mm-hmm. otherwise otherwise if 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 i am not allowed to be wrong mm-hmm. then my team is not allowed to be wrong um and i say i i use wrong here and i'm wrong i realize is a somewhat triggering word but mm-hmm. if, um if, if i don't on a somewhat regular basis update my beliefs and i'm very clear that I used to believe one thing and I now believe another thing because I, I have new information or the, the, the context has changed. Then it's very difficult for anyone else to, to believe that that is um, the belief that is acceptable. And I think there's that really embracing that, I think, is a is a is an exceptionally powerful thing. Um, and and I think for, for I think you can use it as a as a tool in some in some instances. I think there's I can think of several instances in both my current role and, and, and previous roles where in my, my I've been in a room someone's been talking about something or presenting something and you know there's a there's a pressure of being a data professional and people are kind of assume that you're the smartest person in the room it's often not true but there's that hmm. underlying assumption exists sometimes and the power of that of you in that role putting your hand up and saying mm-hmm. I don't understand I've just seen a load of numbers and this makes no sense to me. Can you, can you do it again? And can you do it slowly? Cause I'm being a bit slow today. <laughs> um, the, the, the amount of relief I have seen on people's faces when they didn't want to admit it. There were still, there were, you know, and maybe not the whole room, but you know, there's a chunk of people in that room who, who, who weren't following it or didn't buy the logic or didn't buy the argument, but didn't feel empowered enough or able to, Put the hand up and say, "Wait, no, I, I don't understand. Can you can you say that again?" Or, or you know, I've got a piece of information that disagrees with that. Can we have a conversation about this? And there's a there's a a permission, uh, certainly a permission. I'd go as far as saying an, an obligation of being a data professional. You you role model that behavior, and if someone presents something to you that you don't understand, you should say, "I don't understand. Can you mm. explain it again for me?" Um, because it shows that you're human, mm-hmm. and and, and, I, and I think there's an element of humility. There's an element of humility to that. And and that in and of, I'm flipping this on its head, we've been talking mm. about humility, but humility is not really the goal here, right? Mm. The goal here is trust. That's what this actually comes down to. And, and mm-hmm. I think that's why this you, you mentioned before that this this comes up comes up regularly with data teams, and I think in a lot of ways 
data teams, while they are technical, are much closer to HR teams than they are to engineering teams in some mm-hmm. ways. Right? We are a bunch of subject matter experts mm-hmm. who help other people with their problems from a point of view of some level of, of knowledge. But most of our interactions are effectively coaching conversations where we're helping people think better and, and, and achieve better results with the resources they have available to us. Like, mm-hmm. That definition could apply to an HR team and it could apply to an AT team. Um, and you can't give someone, you can't help someone else change their mind or you can't give someone meaningful advice if they don't trust the advice that you're giving them. Mm-hmm. And people don't trust people they don't understand or they don't, you know, that, that, I never like no one. Someone's not going to admit to me that they're wrong if I never admit to them that I'm wrong. Yeah. Uh, and someone's never going to admit they don't understand if I don't occasionally admit I don't understand because that's just how that's how trust works. And I think that this is this is true for most of of the kind of analytical disciplines. I think there's a slight exception here. If you're doing uh, machine learning to drive machine decisions that affect inanimate objects maybe this is not quite true mm-hmm. but the rest of the analytical sphere whether you're doing data science that feeds humans or data science that feeds systems that that humans interact with or whether you're doing analytics to drive business decisions all of that has a human in the loop somewhere yeah and uh and if you don't understand how that human's thinking and feeling and behaving at that time it's not gonna work yeah exactly so this is interesting because We're going to talk about trust as well. So we found that when it comes to relationship building, the relationship building game is a trust game, right? That's the currency of uh, uh, relationships. And then the coaching element is also another interesting point because what we found is the most successful data leaders are good teachers, good educators. Uh, Even even evangelization as a word, it ultimately uh, 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 goes back to some sort of teaching, some some sort of education. Now, before we get there, uh, just uh, still touching on humility in terms of uh, we talked about this archetype of the data uh, of the data leader. So this is interesting, like how you inspire humility is by embodying that you embody humility. You demonstrate it publicly. You make it okay, and you make it even desirable, you know, using your social leverage in a way to kind of propagate that type of behavior and attitude. Now. With this, we could even localize that. So on a strategic level, it's a good idea to be humble. But um, when we take it to the tactical level, we always like to do that when we talk about communication, right? So when I personally, uh, I have to communicate something difficult to a team member of mine, to a family member of mine, to a friend of mine, right? I use tactical humility, which is very simple, is just before I kind of address the uh, maybe like uh, uh, an issue in a behavior or uh, like anything difficult that I need to communicate, I usually try to find an example in my own life that I can just front load that message with, right? So if I, for example, want to point out a mistake in, in, in someone, but I sit down and I address that problem, I just kind of start with an anecdote of how I've been wrong in the past in a similar way, right? And then I transmit the message and it makes it okay and it's interesting to see how that works at large as well but what other things do you think is important for a data leader in terms of qualities if you look at if you can even say virtues right i know that we don't really use that word anymore it's kind of faded out but virtue works 
right? Humility works. What other virtues could you think of? Um, uh, if you think about yourself, if you, if you think about the successes that you've had in the past, why your leadership was effective, not just because people followed what you were saying, but in general, things just work out when you have good leadership and you get and you have good leadership qualities. It, it's infectious. People just want to follow your lead, not just what you say, but also how you act and how you behave. Um, can you maybe identify a few more things apart from humility? It can be anything. Yeah, I think there are there are a couple that come to mind. Um, there's there's certainly one around learning or almost not not being afraid to learn new things. I think there's mm -hmm. a there's a power that you can have as a as a data leader as a but particularly someone who is seen as a kind of purveyor of truth. You're the person that kind of brings clarity to situations. Mm -hmm. Sometimes that clarity comes in the form of you know, of objective numbers, but sometimes that clarity comes in the form of actually just being able to, to either structure a problem or help someone understand how to break down a problem that might not even be a technical problem or just to understand how something works. Um, uh, and that requires a, 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 an, I guess an element of self-belief to persuade yourself that you can actually mm -hmm. understand it. Um, it requires an element of, of, of effort, you know, complicated things you can't necessarily learn uh, overnight <laughs> you hmm, yeah. to, to see, seek out the right people and keep asking and keep saying no explain to me again explain it to me again explain it to me again explain it to me again but different i still don't understand mm -hmm. and that requires i think you a little bit this is reinforcing what you said before about about um role modeling the behaviors that you want to see in other people. And if you want other people to make logical decisions off the basis of real understanding, you have to, you can't yourself be afraid of, of, of trying to understand things that you don't understand and mm -hmm. going deeper into something if you don't understand it. And you know, finding those, I, I, I talk about the, you know, I think every organization or, or, or group of people or, or business has bits of their structures that are well understood and well known and everybody knows how they work and they also have what i call it the, tra the trap doors like there's that dark hole underneath that back room of that process that no one knows about or that you know that one person knows about and you know it's creaky and everybody walks around it they don't want to admit it's there occasionally your role as a data leader is to open that trap door and look in it and you're going to find chaos and your job is not to you know roll in glitter or to pretend it's what it is to look at look at the complexity in the face and and come to a view on how to communicate that to other people if it's necessary and sometimes the answer is right now we can close this trap door it's not the right thing to focus on but occasionally it will be mm. and i think as as a data leader to be not afraid of walking into that complexity and not afraid of 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 tackling hairy problems or, or difficult problems will is is a is a, a real benefit because it will it will serve you well in the future mm. so courage um, yeah courage it, would it, be an, a, a, another cardinal virtue yeah, of the current of the <laughs> I, 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 I realize it's we've just gone said humility is one aspect and courage is another and those mm. are two things that you know you have to know how to play both those cards at the same time uh, and and without getting in, in the way of either I think mm -hmm. the, the other um, I, I think the other aspect of this is a 
an element of, I, I don't know whether to call it commerciality or pragmatism, um, mm. but I think one of the, the risks of, of, of data, uh, specifically now, is there's a lot of hype. There's a lot of hype mm. around what we do. Everybody wants the big data. They want the AI. They want cloud. I've heard mm. businesses say they want cloud. They're already in the cloud. They just don't know that that's what they're doing. Um, but, uh, you know, that say they want the big data and yet they have 100 customers. Like, mm-hmm. well, can't do it's not it's not necessary um and, and there are some businesses out there that investing in data is the wrong thing for them mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, because that's not what drives that's not what drives business value for them and and from the point of view of practitioners and, and i think this is this is especially true in data science but it, i think it's true across the whole industry to some extent we, we all love the shiny new thing like we want to mm-hmm. play uh i mean i I have conversations with our director of technology about the infrastructure game. The infrastructure game is really fun. You get to play with all these shiny toys. You get to plug them together in different ways. And, you know, and it gets, some of them are quite expensive. And so you feel like you're a big, important person for buying them. It's very time consuming. So it must be valuable. But actually, you can play the infrastructure game a lot and deliver zero value. You can mm-hmm. be value negative. Um, uh, you can do... You can, you, know, you could spend 18 months on the most beautiful deep learning neural net to predict something, but it might only be one percentage point better than something really, really cheap and off the shelf. And is that one point percentage point actually valuable to your business? Um, mm-hmm. Maybe not. Um, uh, and, and time and time again, I think we've found that the, uh, that, that the, the, that having something good delivers a significantly more value than having something amazing, particularly when we, particularly when we talk about predictive analytics. Um, I think we, we having a prediction, which is OK, delivers a huge amount of value. Getting a prediction which is 5% more accurate than your previous prediction. Mm-hmm. Once you've gone through explaining what accuracy means in that context, which is enough effort on its own, often that additional accuracy doesn't deliver significant value. Mm-hmm. It's nice, makes everyone feel a bit better, looks great as a blog post, but does it result in pounds on the bottom line? Not mm-hmm. always. Often the things that do deliver additional value on the top are, are what are those predictions being used for? So um, I'll give you an example that, that, that we've, we do quite a lot of um, recommendations and, and predictions around what our subscribers are going to do and how we offer them you know, better things as a result. And we have reasonably good predictions on what we think people are going to do. The biggest driver on how much value we can use for that is, well, what do we do as a result of those predictions? Mm-hmm. If I got to wave my logic wand and get that project, get that area that we're working on to move faster, I don't want a more accurate prediction. I want more content to send mm-hmm. people on the basis of those predictions. Um, and that brings us back around to how our data integrates with other functions. Right? Um, mm-hmm. if, if we only look at data and we only look at what we can what we can do ourselves, yeah. it's really easy to get focused on data architecture, data infrastructure, on faster, you know, faster latencies and better prediction, predicted accuracies. But really what, what drives the value is, is the use of data in our organizations to have pragmatic and commercial gains. So um, mm. I think having always having one eye on, yeah, but does it matter? Does it mm-hmm. really matter? Does anybody actually care about what we're yeah. doing? We'll 
will help keep I think is a is a I guess my, my third virtue because it will it will keep you honest. It'll make sure you don't just get excited about fun projects because it's the big data's. Um and it will and and I guess it starts looping us back around to what we were talking about before, it will enable you to have much more effective conversations with the stakeholders that you need to work with because exactly. they don't care about accuracy. You they see it's their problems to get better. Such a good point. Such a good point because uh, I've been thinking about this for a while that when you build relationships and you want to have more influence, you know, in in the organization, not like a self-serving influence, but if you want data to be successful and bring more and more value across the business, it helps if your function and you as a data leader has influence, right? Like you, so, so you have leverage. Now, how do you build that leverage? How do you build that leverage? Uh, in a way that actually delivers value, where you build the leverage by having good stories, good stories. And a good story is never we shaved off 3% here. You know, that's not a good story. That's not a good story. That doesn't capture anyone's imagination. It doesn't bring attention. It doesn't demonstrate uh, any real value. But if you start with the use case, you, you start with the how this is being used, when you actually succeed, right, then you have a good piece of story. And basically what we always say that, even if you just think about your own life, right? Or, or we know this as entrepreneurs that basically your asset, your asset as a leader, as a thought leader, as an entrepreneur, an intrapreneur, a corporate leader is basically your little reservoir of stories, of engaging stories that you can reach to, to get people's attention, tell what you're doing, right? Without getting lost in the nitty gritty technical details and the numbers and the statistics, but you literally lose people in 4.7 seconds, you know, whatever the, the attention span is, but you can actually say that this is what we've done for Jack, you know, Jack had this problem, this challenge, you know, but then we did this thing and, you know, now Jack's reality has been, you know, completely updated through this in, in ways of A, B, and C, you know, it's just a whole different story. And then it's, that's why we, we say that it's actually a risky game when you're not following this kind of pragmatism, which I think you really captured it well, that, that you need to be pragmatic. It's a like good versus amazing that it's a risky game because then actually in the midterm and the long term you're losing out on these powerful stories and you don't have leverage you know and, and that's how you fail to become influential to not just your detriment you know being influential is not something that you, know, you can look in the mirror and feel good about yourself that you're influential you know it's real it's it has real effect and real consequence or the lack of it you know, on your results and, you know, your team and the entire organization. So that's great. Actually, I haven't been really thinking about it this way, but I like it. This is the cardinal virtues, you know, because then... And, and I, like what you, you, I like what you said about storytelling there, because I, I, it's easy to see data and analytics as a very scientific mm -hmm. activity. And, 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 in, and at times it is, but at, at times it's also an intensely creative activity. Like it is, it's mm -hmm. a creative and storytelling is part of that. And I think to, to build on what you were saying there, that, and I'm, I'm not going to take credit for this myself, this is an idea that I, uh, uh, someone I know shared, I still can't remember who shared it, but they shared a brilliant distinction between two kinds of stories. There are stories with data and there are stories about data. Mm. And the, the, and a story, sorry, a story with a with data is the kind of story that we've been saying we that we want to tell. These are stories about transformational change that are supported by data. That there might be data that measures them, but the data is not the star of the show here. The change mm. that you manage to bring about and mm. the, the the opportunity is the is the is the subject of the story. And the, those stories are valuable. Stories about data are also valuable. Stories about how you did something why it was hard, what you learned from it, what we're going to do differently next time, how we structured what we were doing to to achieve some particular end. 
is also valuable, but in a different situation. Mm-hmm. Stories with data are what we as data professionals should be telling outside of our yes. outside of our day jobs. Those are the stories we should be telling to our leadership teams, to our commercial partners, to the people that, that rely on the work we do. They don't, well, not always, they sometimes do, but what, mm-hmm. by and large, they don't care about stories about data. Yeah. They care about stories with data. When we are, as a community, talking to each other about best practice and how we learn and develop each other and, and coach each other to be better at what we do, then there is a time for stories about data. Um, and some of those, the, some of those can be very, you know, powerful stories. But the mm-hmm. point of those stories is about the craft, about what we do, about the professional development of each other, not about the change. And mm-hmm. um, I think this is one of the things that I think is really you look at the development of, of people coming into the into the industry. And one of the most transformational things they can do is to know the difference between those two kinds of stories and know which mm-hmm. one to tell. Am I going into this to tell a story about data or am I going to tell a story with data? And if you tell the right story, then you'll get the change you want. And if you tell the wrong story, people will get bored and they'll be on. They'll be on and you're just losing. Yeah. Well, they, and once they're gone, they're gone. And that, I mean, it's, we're looping back to trust again, but then every opportunity you have to tell the right story, you tell the right story, you get more trust. You tell the wrong story, you lose trust. And if you tell the right story enough times, You'll you'll be able to achieve all kinds of things, and if you consistently walk into rooms and tell the wrong story, you're not going to get invited to those rooms very often. Exactly, and your goal is to be invited to the rooms, and not just to be invited, but be welcome in the rooms. You know, because people like you, trust you, you are in the habit of bringing value, and you are also in the habit of being able to talk about that value, right? Because that's the other thing that we see. You know, because you, this is what what people actually uh, kind of mistake and confuse that you know humility in this case it's also about i'm not focusing on myself but i'm focusing on the people that i'm serving i'm focusing on the outcomes that i want to bring about and how that contributes to the common good that that's an act of humility but for example if you have a success and you're hiding that success or you're not able to articulate that success the right way right that's not a virtue that's not humility either right so uh, that whole idea about focus on the value like build up that reservoir of stories and learn how to tell the stories in the right way to the to the right people and this is how the whole idea about just build relationships as this kind of fertile soil in which you can basically plant the seeds through the stories and then by bringing value uh, uh, continually you're basically like watering those seeds i don't know where this analogy breaks down uh, I, I know but i think <laughs> i think it's a, i think it's a great analogy and I, I, and I, for for an additional reason which touched on something you said you said before that you need to invest in these relationships before you need them. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. if the first time you try and build trust is when you need to have a tough conversation, that's going to be really hard. Mm-hmm. Whereas if if you build up, and, and you can look at this through a couple of lenses, whether we're talking about feedback or whether we're talking about um whether we're talking about decision making, whether we're talking about you know the conversations about trust with other people. If you don't build the trust first, then you won't be able to rely on it later. Um, mm. So, you know, if, if you want the number of times someone said, oh, you know, I, I've got some quite tough feedback I need to deliver. To okay. And I'm a bit worried about, well, why are you worried about it? Well, I've never given this person feedback before. I will. Mm. Now is not, don't start with the one big piece of feedback that you, that's been pissing you off. Because if you start with the elephant, 
you're going to scare them off. You, you, like, you, really, I mean, it's the analogy of the best time to plant a tree is 40 years ago. The second best time is now. Like, <laughs> it is. It, but it, I, I think it's doubly important for, for if you are, it's important if you're an analyst or you are a data professional of some kind. It's doubly important if you're a data leader because the degree to which your success in what you need to do is, is predicated on, on these relationships and all of these relationships, then um, it's, it's just much greater. And, and, mm. and therefore, the, the, the cost to you of not investing in those relationships up front um, it is is much greater. There's a beautiful story from uh, I was told this by uh, Caroline Carruthers, one of the, the mm, authors, yeah, of Data Officer's playbook, and she describes herself often as the the tea and cake lady, mm. and that you go into you go into new organizations, and you know she would just turn up at people's office doors with cake, they have a nice chat and get to know each other, and that meant that when she actually needed to come in and have a serious conversation about data and change there was already a baseline of trust there they already knew each other and they already knew that she was great because she comes bearing cake um mm-hmm. and there's while i think it's it's a lovely example and obviously the same thing won't necessarily work for everyone but finding that way of how do you get to have a good relationship with people before you need to use it rather mm-hmm. than when you need to use it and then that's that's that the kind of groundwork in your garden to make sure that you you know your plants are actually going to grow if you mm-hmm. the first time you try and do anything with your soil is when you're planting a tree it's, it's a bit late yeah exactly no that's that that's really good stuff and uh alan i think we just hit the hour mark as well you know so no no that, that was great actually i wrote down a bunch of stuff uh this whole idea about the uh you know cardinal virtues of the data uh data professional uh this is really good stuff and um, we are going to implement a lot of that in the um, in the actual product as well, and probably nice. like cut out a few bits and pieces, and you know publish them at some point. And I will also just you know put it on our Apple Podcast. So that was fantastic. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm.